finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things, and we talk about them, and about half of the time, the things that we read are comics books, comical books of a graphical nature. We read them with our eyes. And then the other half of the time, they're regular old boring word books. Sometimes those do have pictures in them, but they could still function pretty much the same way if you remove the pictures. Now, these other books, if you remove the pictures from them, they wouldn't work at all. They'd just be a bunch of disconnected fragments of dialogue. Anyway, we read two graphic novels for this episode. Oh, you're, Andrew's a librarian. And Nate's a writer. And she's also, she's my mom. And he's my son. That so would be weird ca- if that wasn't true, if the first statement was true. Well, you're all caught up, so let's get into these. Yes, yeah, yeah. So we read two uh, graphic novels. One might argue graphic novelettes, perhaps, because they're both 50 pages. Well, they're kind of short, but they're one contained story. Yeah, so this is the first time, a couple firsts here, I think. The, we'll start with what we read. We read... The Left Bank Gang and I Killed Adolf Hitler, which are both by the Norwegian cartoonist Jason. Uh, he has a real name that contains two letters that I don't know how to pronounce, so we will just call him Jason. I think his name is John Arn Satteray. Uh, sure, but that's that's got the A and the E where they're touching butts, and it's got the, like, O with the line through it, so it looks like a zero. And we're just too tired. After all of our enormous amounts of holiday celebrations to Google it. So let's just call him Jason because I think that's how he prefers to be called. I mean, that's what the name that are, that's on the books he has put out. So I assume that's what he wants us to call him. So Jason is a Norwegian cartoonist, uh, which makes these are the first things we've read that are by a cartoonist, a single individual who did the art and wrote the book. So these are published by an independent publisher? These are both published by Fantagraphics in America. I don't know if they were published originally in Norway by a different publisher, but at least here in America they're published by Fantagraphics, who've published a lot of his works. I've read a few things. So I Killed Adolf Hitler is the first thing by him that I've ever read, but I've read a few others, uh, which also includes a comic called Hey, uh, not Hey Wait. Hey Wait's a different thing. Hold on. I'm going to look this up. Because the thing that's most notable, and I think gets sort of mentioned the most when Jason comes up, is that all of his characters are cartoon animals. Yeah, I think he has a very characteristic style. And if you see his work, you immediately recognize it. He uses a very sparse color palette. I think it's mostly tan, black, white, and some red. Mm Mm-hmm. All of his characters are animals. They're human-inspired. You know, they're anamorphic. Anthropomorphic. Anthropomorphic. Yeah, so he uses these animals and he writes the stories. He illustrates them. He creates them in this sort of construct. And he's very heavily influenced by Hollywood filmmaking and literature and history and, of course, other comics. I mean, I... 
I had not read any of his work. So the, these, this was my first exposure to him. And I really sort of got this impression that they reminded me like the early Tex Avery cartoons before he started making the, you know, the animated shorts that he would do. You know, he, these characters, especially like the dogs remind me of that, like the wolf from the Tex Avery cartoons. Um, it also reminded me a little bit of a, like Tintin. And that sort of like style of artwork. Lynn Clare is the name of the the style that Tintin's drawn. It was a clean line, is basically what it means. Yeah. And so like that's true here. Everything is very uh, deliberate and precise. The lines are very thin and clean, and like everything is staged in a very clear and straightforward way. There's not a lot of um, weird experimental panels like we saw in a lot of the Sandman and even the Swamp Thing stuff we were reading. Uh, so the, the work I was looking for the name of, he has a comic called Pocket Full of Rain that I've read, where he draws it in a more realistic style with human characters and mixes in a few other styles of cartooning. I think sort of like a proto version of the animal characters show up in that before becoming kind of the main focus of his later works. Yeah, and I think another thing that I thought was really interesting is obviously he's not an American, but he is influenced heavily by this sort of American action filmmaking style. And I think you kind of see it like more when we talk about the plot of the left bank gang, because the kind of the way that he cuts the action is almost cinematic. And it's really interesting in the way that he does it. I wonder though, if it is influenced by American art, because I was thinking about that with the left bank gang, because I was like, it, does it feel like it's influenced by American movies, or is he drawing from the same, like, French influences that Tarantino was when he made stuff like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, which have the same kind of, like, uh, chopped up timeline that the Left Bank Gang has? I, th- I was thinking that too, but I think that the way that he does it seems more modern, which makes it seem like it's more like a Tarantino film than what inspires a Tarantino film. Which would be like the French New Wave. Right, yeah. I mean, it could be a combination of both, but I think like the style of, like the way he sets out the panels and the action, especially like when we talked about the Left Bank Gang, that whole sort of um, fluctuating point of view and looking at like the same seen but from multiple ways kind of seems like a very tarantino way to do things sure 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 so let's get into it the left bank gang was published in 2006 and it won an eisner award in 2007 so what is the importance of an eisner award uh they're like the biggest comic book awards they're you know you could you could say they're the comic book oscars or the comic book hugo so there there are other Comic book awards. We've talked about them on the podcast. There were the Eagle Awards for a while. There's the Ignats. The Eisner's is like the biggest, most publicized one. So it's sort of the most visible accolade a comic book could get outside of winning some award, you know, winning something really that is like outside of comics, like uh, Midsummer's Night Dream did or something like that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, he, he, I think he has, he won one for this and he also won. And Eisner for I Killed Hitler. So I don't know if he went on to win more. I mean, obviously, he's very talented, so he probably will have an illustrious career. But let's get into the Left Bank Gang. Do you want to give a little summary? or? Sure, I can give a summary. Um, wait, I wanted to... So yeah, yeah, he won 
the same 2071 best U.S. edition of International Geographic for Left Bank Gang, and then the same award the next year for a Khalid of Hitler, but hasn't won anything since then, which is a little bit disappointing. He's put out a bunch of stuff since then. Anyway, uh, the Left Bank Gang is a eventually reveals itself to be a high story, but a specific kind of high story, which is like the like I said, like kind of the Reservoir Dogs thing where the heist happens but it goes wrong and the story is about piecing together what went wrong but before that it is about struggling artists and it's specifically about the lost generation writers it uses real people in this fictional story uh specifically Ernest Hemingway, Ezra Pound, F Scott Fitzgerald, F. Scott Fitzgerald James Joyce and Zelda Fitzgerald. Right. And also there's an appearance by Jean-Paul Sartre and um, a gentleman called Eduardo Horzon, who ends up being Zelda. She, he's a real person. Okay. He's a, like a playboy, millionaire, autopilot. You know, he flies planes. But he is, for a brief time, Zelda's um, paramour. Gertrude Stein also makes an appearance. Yes. Yeah. She yells at Hemingway, calls him a punk, and tells him he's using the wrong kind of pencil. So, I mean, just like real life. I think, like, before we start talking about the plot, like, let's talk a little bit about the lost generation. So these are writers. They're post-World War One writers who live primarily in Paris. This takes place on the left bank. Yeah. And part of it takes place in the Latin Quarter, which is the area where most of the writers lived. Mm-hmm. And then it takes... Based mostly in the 1920s and 1930s. That's when these writers were most active. And um, I think the plot is they decide they want to plan a heist because they're not making enough money from their writing. So, yeah. So the, the, but the two big things here is, one, they're, they're all animals because it's Jason drawing it. So Hemingway is a dog. Uh, Fitzgerald's a dog. Ezra Brown is a dog with a beard. Uh, but James Joyce is a bird with glasses. That's he's my favorite character. He's like a crow. Yeah, I like that. And he's like in the like this like plaid suit, and he's got the hat. Like he's dressed like James Joyce, but he's a little bird. Uh, and then the other big thing is uh, Jason recasts all of these writers, and through the implication we get from conversations that are had, basically every famous writer in history as a cartoonist. And so I think, like, the trick here with having them be cartoonists, but also having them be these famous writers, is it's kind of feels like him going to bat for his art form. Like, what he wants, I, what I think he wants to tell here is less a story about the lost generation and more a story about him and his friends, about being a struggling artist now and being a struggling cartoonist, but by... Attaching it to these famous writers whose lives and struggles we know, who we know that they we've gone on to continue reading their works up until modern day, he's like kind of taking a little bit of borrowing some of the gravitas from their lives and their work to get you to think about comics with the same weight that he thinks about them. Like he understands that for all of the advancements we've made. Comics are still kind of pushed to the side. There's still a lot of people who look down on them or dismiss them or sort of treat them as like a curiosity. And he's trying, by connecting them to these respected canonical writers, he's trying to 
make sure that even if you don't think about comics with the same weight that he does, he can kind of like trick you into it by, by the association. Yeah, I think it's an interesting take because there's a couple scenes. There's a scene between um, Hemingway and Fitzgerald where they're talking about art and he makes a reference to like trying a different style or doing something different in his work. And then one of my favorite sort of touches in the graphic novel is when Fitzgerald goes to the bookstore, which is a famous bookstore, Shakespeare and Company. Mm-hmm. And he starts looking at this new edition of Dostoevsky and it's a comic and he starts talking about how his art and he starts like talking about what, what people would talk about the literature of Dostoevsky, but talking about the art and the construction of a comic book. Which I think is very interesting. Yeah, and he gives us a couple different struggles of artists in this. Because it's like, Hemingway's thing is that he's prolific. He's working constantly and making stuff. But he's not... He either can't sell it or he isn't selling it for enough money to support himself. And he's living off of his wife's trust fund and trying to raise this kid. And he's struggling to reconcile his you know, conception of masculinity... With his dependence on other people and like inability of the work that he, he has passion for to provide him and his family with the life he thinks they deserve. And then on the other end, you have Fitzgerald, who is continually frustrated and his personal life is intruding on his artistic life and he can't finish anything. And then you have Ezra Pound, who is finishing things and selling them, but is bad at managing his money. Right. And is like constantly trying to grub money off of people and borrow money that he doesn't intend to repay. Yeah, and I think, like, and James Joyce is kind of, like, just kind of, like, floating through life. He's not really working. He's not really producing anything. He's sort of just enjoying his, like, yeah. notoriety. He seems like he's, like, more invested in this writing scene right now than he is in the writing itself at the moment. So then who suggest They go to a... Uh, there's a... Pro- like... Both Fitzgerald and Hemingway are having marital problems. Yeah. And they start hanging out together and they go on a sort of a a bender and they end up at a prize fight. And then one of them, I forget who is the one who instigates this idea. He's at the fight with Joyce. It just happens after his bender with Fitzgerald. But they're like, they have this conversation about like, why do we do this? And like, you know, why don't we make enough money? And that, I think, gives Hemingway the idea to rob a bank. No, he sees a robbery, doesn't he? He sees a bank robbery, and then when he's at the prize fight, he says, let's rob the takings from the prize fight. Mm -hmm. And that's what he does. And he recruits the other writers to be involved in this left bank gang to rob this um, prize fight. So they come up with this plan uh, where Fitzgerald, Pound, and Hemingway are going to do the robbery with like masks on, and James Joyce is going to pretend to be blind, and he's going to distract the police officers. Right, and then along the way, this is where it sort of becomes almost like a a, a Tarantino film. There's a a twist, and then another twist, and another twist. And each character reveals their role yeah, so the whole, in the heist. The whole thing plays out, and we see it go wrong. 
So, you know, they're all wearing these masks that look like skulls, which are a visual reference to a dream that Hemingway has earlier in the story about World War One, where he's, like, in the trenches. And there's, like, these soldiers with skeleton faces. Right. And then somebody, sh- in the midst of the robbery, someone shows up wearing one of those masks, and he sh- shoots, uh, who does he shoot? He shoots Fitzgerald and takes the money. And then after that plays out, it cuts into each person's perspective. We can find out what happens with each of them. Which it turns, what it turns out is, uh, Zelda's lover, Eduardo, is that his name? Yes. He has, he has like heard about the heist through Zelda because Fitzgerald wouldn't shut up about it. And she, he told her. And so he shoots Joyce and then goes into the place and shoots, uh, Fitzgerald, and then he goes home and gets in a fight with Zelda, and they shoot each other, and then, <laughs> uh, Ezra Pound steals all the money, but then it turns out it's like decoy money, and it's just like newspaper clippings. And then it turns out that they burn the real money. Yeah. I like the one part where, right before it's revealed that the money is fake, they're walking down the street, and all of this paper is flying around and landing on them. And they realize it's like cut newspaper. And then it cuts to the scene where it's revealed that Zelda cut the newspaper to switch the bags so that her and, I guess, Eduardo could leave with the money. Yeah, because it's in Fitzgerald's... I think it's in Fitzgerald's point of view. He get the like the paper falls on him, and then when we see it from Ezra's point of view... He gets in a fight with Hemingway on the roof, and they tear open the bag, and it has all the paper in it. Right. And then the very last page is, so the way all of these, these are all done in nine-panel grids. It's like three panels, three panels, three panels down the page. Um, And the way they're set up is like, at the beginning of each person's section, there's a black panel with that person's name in it. And we go through all the major characters, and then the last page is one more nine-panel grid that says, Hadley, Hemingway's wife. And we see him come home at night, and he wakes her up, and then the last thing he says before the end of the story is, please don't ever leave me. Well, it's ironic, though, because it turns out in real life he ends up leaving her. Well, yeah. But I think this story is not about the real Ernest Hemingway. Right. Like, if anything, Hemingway in this is a stand-in for Jason. Or at least are his anxieties as an artist. So no one gets the money. No one gets the money. It's all all silly. Which I think the... the it becomes like a, uh, like the, the, the heist becomes a metaphor for, for trying to be a professional artist. Right. Where it's like, what's definitely going to happen is you're going to suffer and people are going to get hurt. What might happen is you get money. What likely will happen is you don't. Yeah. I like, there was, the parts that I really liked about this, there were, there were three parts. I like the part where um, Jean-Paul Sartre shows up and he gets punched in the face, which I think is sort of like a, a comment on like his like existential philosophy. Yeah, he tries to start a fight with Hemingway because he thinks he's insulting him, and then Hemingway just wordlessly punches him in the mouth. Yeah, I like that. I like the sort of comic relief of James Joyce where he sort of plays like the, like, you know, like, he's almost like the Buster Key. Yeah, he, that's what I was going to say. He too. has this sort of, like, bumbling... His role was to be like a bumbling blind man who needs help from the police officer to distract him. Mm-hmm. And then he accidentally walks into the middle of the plot and he's not even aware of what, what is actually going on. I like that. And I like this 
the part where Gertrude Stein is giving this sort of writing or cartooning advice to, I think, is it Hemingway? Yeah, it's Hemingway. Yeah. Because he's, in the beginning of the story, it has this cool flow in the beginning of the story where it's like Hemingway's walking down the street and he runs into Ezra Pound and he's like, come get a drink with me. And he's like, no, I'm going to see Gertrude Stein. And then like, uh, Fitzgerald shows up and James Joyce, they try to get James Joyce's attention, but he doesn't see them. And then we go into those meetings like, it has this, like, I think he does a good job in, in the beginning of this, the comic of capturing the kind of feeling of being, uh, in Paris at that time and just having all these people around and sort of drifting from social engagement to social engagement. But we see Hemingway hanging out with Gertrude Stein and she tells him that he's a punk and that he's using the wrong kind of pencil. He should pencil with a blue pencil so that when they photocopy it, that doesn't show up and he doesn't have to waste all his time erasing the lines. And then that ties into a thing later on when Fitzgerald is arguing with Zelda, he's like, you used to help me like erase the lines. And it's like this thing where like her job is like the job she would have in helping him with his art is like technically obsolete. And it becomes this reflection of like their distancing from each other in their relationship, which I think is a really uh, neat little bit of writing. Yeah. I think it's kind of like, there's always been this sort of impression of Zelda that she was a distraction mm-hmm. to Fitzgerald, and he never really achieved his like, you know, his the fame or the you know the literary greatness that he could have achieved if he didn't have her. Yeah, but Jason's statement on that is that Fitzgerald was just always looking for distraction. Of course, yes, because he's constantly fucking around and goofing off. He's the one that always wants to go out and drink. He puts a cup on his head when they're drinking and, like, just does a bunch of bullshit. Like, he's the guy that... He's just a chronic procrastinator and he creates drama as an excuse to not write. Well, I think you, of all people, can relate to that because you know what it's like to sort of not be focused because you can't focus your idea so that you look for any distraction. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. To pull you away from the work that you should be working on. I mean, everybody's like that. It's not even a creative thing. It's just the sort of yeah, yeah, a way that people are. I mean, why, why not? I mean, I'm surprised that he didn't have him like playing a video game. Like, <laughs> there's like people look for time wasting, especially when they can't. You know, I'm mean, that's a maybe that's like a comment on like modern culture mm-hmm. that it's so easy to distract yourself. This is actually the second comic that I know of. From Jason about Hemingway. Yeah, it seems to have some sort of a fascination with him because in that Pocket Full of Rain comic, there's a short comic about like Hemingway's last day that sort of is, deals with his like paranoia and his cats are in it and it like raises this question of like, well, what if he wasn't paranoid? And it's just this sort of like short little meditation on, on death. But I think like that's sort of. Like, with that and this taken together, you sort of start to see this portrait of, like, this idealized Hemingway as uh, Jason's sort of avatar for, like, what is an artist. I think also, I think Hemingway, and I don't know if it's a suffering or it's, like, a modern construct, but there's always this sort of, like, opinion of him that he's very masculine, that he's very manly, and he's sort of, like, the epitome of, like, this masculine idea of like the like writer as a celebrity yeah but i think like that's like he does a nice thing with that in this where it's like the the idea is that 
this sort of rugged masculinity and individualism is sort of at odds with the reality of pursuing a career in art because inevitably you're going to have to rely on another person. Like either you start off independently wealthy or you rely on the people in your life. Like very rarely, if ever, are you going to be able to just jump right from I'm making some art to I make enough money off my art that I don't need anybody else. Right, right. But I think like the lost generation, that whole clique of writers, they're known. I mean, they're known for their writing because there were there was some really quality writing coming out at the time. But I think they're also known for this sort of celebrity and the sort of infamy of like the way that they chose to live their lives. Yeah, it's kind of like Henry Miller. Like a lot of people talk about like Henry Miller and his like private life you know in in conjunction with his writing but i think like the man that is henry miller like same thing like ernest hemingway the man that is ernest hemingway is like just as famous as the characters that he creates yeah and i think that's but i think that is why you can use him in a story like this like people know right away you don't need to really explain who he is i mean like there's references to his like persona like there's a part where they're walking down the street i think it is the the sequence where he punches uh, Sartre is he's like walking down the street with Ezra Pound, I think, and he's explaining like why bullfighting is so great in his opinion. And then they stop and get in a brief fight, and then he goes back to talking about bullfighting. I think it's interesting that they have Ezra. Pound. I mean, he is definitely a lost generation writer, but you don't hear as much about him, like his sort of like. In the contract of when people talking about F. Scott Fitzgerald well, and his lifestyle. and There's all kind of a big, you know, cloud. There's a big thing hanging over Pound, which is that he, you know, was a fascist collaborator eventually. Yeah, yeah. Which kind of sours any sort of discussion you want to have about him. I remember I was reading something. I forget. Some writer... I think it was, like, a Beat Generation poet or something was talking about, like, poetry and, like, modern poetry. And he kind of characterized Ezra Pound as this, like, grim specter that haunts any discussion of poetry. Because it inevitably leads back to him and it's always unpleasant when he comes up. But I think there's unpleasant parts in all of these. I mean, like... Ernest Hemingway was, like, a terrible misogynist. He was terrible to women. Yeah. He didn't believe in women's rights. He was kind of, like, a dick to his own wives and his children. And, like, F. F. Scott Fitzgerald was, like, an enabler. He preyed on his wife's mental illness. Sure, sure. So, I mean, it's, like... I'm not saying, like, okay, it's okay to be a fascist. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. I think whatever pass they give... And Jim Fitzgerald, Jones, yeah, and so whatever pass they give Hemingway and Fitzgerald, they don't give to Pound because his literary crime is political. Well, it's also like his crime; he used his. It, it would be different if, like, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald like wrote a book. That made them institutionalize his wife. Like, Ezra Pound used his writing to do the bad thing he did. Yeah. Which sours not just him as a person, but sours his writing. But I was going to say, the the greatest crime of all of them is that James Joyce invented horny posting. (laughs) Is that a crime? I I think it is. In retrospect, absolutely it is. (laughs) 
Well. I mean, I'm not saying that the other guys are, are excused. I think they're they're all bad. But I just think there's something sp- about what Pound did and how he did it that is like specifically makes him harder to talk about in some circles. But I think it's interesting that Jason sort of portrays him in a sort of innocuous way. He's just a poet. He's just a friend. He's but then he does is the one in, in the group. That betrays the method. Right. And I think that's maybe a reflection on what his career, how his career rolls out. And then it's the newspapers are raining. Like it's a very clear visual metaphor for like what ended up happening with that guy. This is, I think that's a really well, like he does a really good job setting up all the pieces and playing them off and having everything like mean something else. Like it's a, it's a very like, uh, symbologically rich little comic. Well, I think that's the beauty of, I mean, especially with when we read the next one, they seem very simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a simple plot line. The artwork is very sparse, very sort of minimalist. And it kind of seems like you can quickly read it and you're like, okay, this is an interesting, interesting story, interesting art. But when you start to unpackage what's going on, you realize that it's a lot more complicated and sophisticated than it appears at your first read. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was an interesting take on the lost generation because usually, you know, when people take historical figures and they rewrite them into like a new story, they either take them out of their timeline or they put them in, you know, so it's nice that Hemingway is not like a detective, you know what I mean? So it isn't, and, yeah. it, and it sort of takes place in the time that they're active, which makes it seem like it could be more realistic. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, it's like you could almost be like, this could have happened if things went slightly differently. Yeah. yeah. I could, would believe that a version of Hemingway would try and... Stage a daring daytime robbery and get a bunch of his friends killed. Uh, yeah, and then be two times by... Ezra Pound? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you have anything else to say about the Left Bank game? I thought it was good. I really liked it. I mean, I knew I was going to like it because I had seen the book, but I hadn't read it. And I really liked the sort of... But this is what I was saying about the cinematic styling of like how the story rolls out. Like when the heist is happening and he's cutting intercutting between the scenes with different people's point of views i think that sort of really seems like something that would happen in a movie yeah and it's also because his artwork is so and staging is so clear and clean you could easily i mean except for the fact that they're dogs and birds and stuff you could easily just take a lot of these panels and be like okay these are the storyboards let's make like a 45 minute movie like short about hemingway robbing a prize fight. I thought it was a little bit confusing. I couldn't really tell the difference between the cats and the dogs because they don't, the cats don't have whiskers. Yeah. I, I think, think that's only like a aesthetic thing. I think he does a good job of differentiating the individual characters. Yes. Because it's like, even though Pound and Hemingway are both black and white dogs, he gives like Pound this little like scruff from under his chin and like, Hemingway has more sort of pronounced scruff on the sides of his face, so you can tell them apart. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's true. So, but I think that sort of ambiguous confusion really plays well in the second graphic novel. Mm-hmm. So, always so before we transition into the second graphic novel, I want to talk about two other cartoonists: Carl Barks and Osama Tezuka. 
So, Tezuka is the guy who did Astro Boy. And Astro... I, I, well, I think there's like a clear Carl Barks influence. I'll start with Barks, actually. In Jason's work. Uh, one, um, does Carl Barks is known as the good duck artist. He's the, the guy... One of the guys who was drawing the early Donald Duck comics. And he was like the best one. And before Disney would put... Um, Credits for the artists on it, people sort of had to piece together through sort of guesswork and observation who did what, and he was known as the good duck artist. But he would do a similar thing to Jason, where he would take these animal characters that seem kind of goofy and cartoony and write these sort of more sort of complex and ambitious stories with them and use them as uh, this, this cast to hang these stories on. And then the reason I bring up Tezuka is I think... Jason does something similar to what Tezuka called his star system. So if you ever read any, um, well, here's a good example. So you, you're, you're familiar with what the characters look like in Astro Boy. Right, obviously. Yes. And then you, you and I, at some point, I know, when I was younger, we watched that movie Metropolis. Right. The anime that was sort of based on the, um, the Fritz Lang movie. And that's, Oh, that anime uh, uses Tezuka designs, and you can tell very obviously that some of the characters in it look exactly like the characters from Astro Boy. And he called that his star system, where he has this cast of characters that he likes to draw or that he does draw that have these sort of baseline, the same designs, but in each work he'll shuffle them around into different roles. And, you know, some of them have, like, general archetypes that they usually play. Sometimes he'll play them against type and a character that's, like, a, a character design that's, like, a friendly supporting role in one comic will be a villain in the next one. And I think Jason does the same thing where the protagonist of I Killed Adolf Hitler is the same design as the as Hemingway in the Left Bank game. And I think it's, it's, it's like this actor dog that plays... Hemingway in the Left Bank Gang also plays this assassin in I Killed Adolf Hitler. Yeah, I think it's kind of like what we were talking about when we talked briefly about his dark materials, mm-hmm. where the demons that people had were certain animals, and in certain stratas of the social climate, they would have different... So. For example, if you were a housekeeper or you were some kind of servant, you would have a demon that was a dog. And if you were a police officer, you would have a Doberman Pinscher, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's sort of the same sort of thing. Yeah. So it's the same dogs and cats. And I don't know if there's any other animals in this. Birds. And birds who exist in this sort of world that Jason creates, but they're playing a different role. Yeah. I mean, in the, Adolf, I could lead a Hitler actually directly acknowledges that his characters look the same and uses that as a plot point at one point. Yeah, I think that's one of the parts that I thought was the most interesting about the, the graphic novel is that there's a point where Adolf Hitler takes off his signature mustache and he shaves his head, and then throughout the rest of the graphic novel... You see a bunch of dogs that look like Adolf Hitler doing things in the town. So you're sort of, as the character is looking for Adolf Hitler, 
you yourself are also looking for him because you know that he is disguised, which I think is a very clever thing to do because you're not quite sure if you see a white dog, if it's actually Adolf Hitler or if it's a white dog that's just part of the background scenery. So the premise of I Killed Adolf Hitler is it's set in a world where Hitman is like a acceptable occupation that you can like officially have with like an office and like advertisements and people just come to you and they hire you to murder people and for whatever reason these uh for-profit murders are like perfectly legal yeah and i think that's one of the things that's interesting is the beginning of the story is the hitman i don't think they ever name any of the characters i think the only named character is adolf hitler right so there's this sort of montage of him like going through his daily work day he works in an office and he takes these jobs and then he goes out into the town and he fulfills those jobs. But the whole time that he's working, doing his job, he's sort of like a workaholic and he has a girlfriend who becomes unhappy because he wants to work all the time. Yeah, and he's very emotionally distant and you start to understand why he's using the same design as the guy who was Hemingway. And then he gets hired by this scientist to get in a time machine, go back in time, and kill Hitler. So, what kind of dog is the hitman? He's a black and white dog. Um, what kind of dog is he? I'm not a big dog. No, person. I mean he's a he is a black and white dog, and Adolf Hitler is a white dog. Yeah, and his the hitman's Hitler girlfriend might be a bear. He's white, but he has little round ears, where all the other dogs have lo- more longer ears. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure if he was supposed to be, like, maybe, like, a bulldog kind of thing. Maybe. And then his girlfriend is a cat. Yeah. And she's, like, I think she's the same design as Zelda. Right. In the Left Bank Gang. And then what happens is someone puts a hit out on the hitman. Oh, yeah. That happens in the beginning. Someone. And he thinks it's the girlfriend. She denies it. Yeah, he stops the, the guy, a guy tries to kill him in his apartment, and he stops him and kills the guy that was trying to kill him. Right. So he's kind of, you get the impression that he's starting to become sort of disillusioned with his career choice, because he kind of seems bored when all the people, the people come in and they want to assassinate other people for really mundane things. It's all petty and venal, and he's like constantly being exposed to this pettiness and that people have and having to be this force that enacts their stupid, dark desires on the world. And it's clearly like wearing him down. So when the scientist approaches him, he's interested in doing this job. Yeah. And you get the impression that it's like, cause this is like basically the only unambiguously good thing he's ever been asked to do. So, so the, he says, how am I supposed to do it? And the, the scientist says, I have a machine. And then it turns out that the machine is so powerful that it takes 50 years to charge up. Yeah. So, so he only has literally one shot in his lifetime. Because that's why the scientist can't do it himself. He has to get this guy to do it because this guy's good at killing people. And he'll be able to do it in the one shot, supposedly. Except things go wrong. Right. When he shows up to kill Hitler, he gets spotted by one of the guards. The fight ensues. 
He gets knocked out, and Hitler steals the time machine. So then Hitler goes back in time. He goes forward in time. Goes forward in time. To when the, the, the time that the hitman left from. And then he he's like gonna... He sees the scientist, and then another dude comes through the door into the warehouse where the time machine is, and shoots Hitler in the chest. It's the hitman, and he's older because he just lived the 50 years... Uh, or whatever time span it was. I know it's more than 50. He just lived the time from uh, when he showed up till now, waiting for Hitler to come back in the time machine. Right. So he's back in time. He can't get back after he shoots Hitler or Hitler escapes the first time. So he just lives his life waiting for the time to come back. And then he shows up at the time when Hitler comes through the machine and then he shoots him. And then he realizes this is... a Great detail. They're both too old and they can't move the body. Mm-hmm. So he has to go and get his girlfriend who is young. Yeah. And convince her that it's him old and the whole thing that happened to come back and move Hitler's body. But once they get back, they realize that Hitler is not dead because he had a copy of Mein Kampf <laughs> in his jacket and he shot him right in the book and the book stopped the bullet. So Hitler escapes into modern times. He knocks out the scientist. Yeah, he knocks out the scientist who was an old man. And he escapes into modern times. And he shaves off his mustache. This is what I was talking about. He shaves off his mustache and gives himself a haircut. So he blends in. Mm -hmm. So now the hitman and his girlfriend, the hitman is an old man now and has lived his entire life. And his girlfriend is a young woman. He convinces her to help him find... Hitler and make things right. Yeah, and then they start to, uh, you know, as they're hunting down Hitler, they start to talk and bond again, and we realize that he's, like, mature, and he's getting old, and he kind of needs somebody to take care of him, and she reveals that she was the one who hired the assassin to go after him. Yeah. Because, what is the reasoning she gives? She's just upset with him because he doesn't pay attention to her. There's a scene in the beginning where she's trying to seduce him, but he's so focused on his work, he doesn't even notice her. And then there's a part where she goes on a date with another man and he gets jealous and he contemplates assassinating the man that she's on the date with. Yeah. And then she gets upset when she finds out that he lived a whole life and he has a family and children and grandchildren. He has kids that he doesn't talk to that much and a wife that died. Right. So, but the whole time that he... They they find a historian who has written a book that says that... Hit the, and it's kind of like a crackpot book in modern times. But the premise of this historian's research is that Hitler jumped in a time machine and escaped. He never was... He never killed himself in the bunker. Yeah, because even, even though Hitler escapes getting killed in the present day, it doesn't change any of history because he's still just gone. Right. Yeah, so he had already done most of his damage that he was going to do. So they realize that this crackpot historian is actually correct, and he he is right about what happened to Hitler. So they start following him. I don't. They start following him because they think that he knows Hitler? They think that Hitler might... They know that Hitler went to the library, and they think he found this guy's book, and it's the best lead they have on who Hitler might try and contact. But, like, so, 
all the while that this is happening and they're getting closer, they go, like, eventually they go out to, like, dinner and another hitman tries to kill another guy in the restaurant and a stray bullet kills the hitman, like, our main character, and he dies. And she's, like, horrified... And there's a sequence where she just like goes home and she lays down in the bed and she gets up and she sits in a chair and she just says no. And then we get a little, uh, you know, caption panel that just says 50 years later and she's an old woman. She gets on the time machine, goes back in time to when he shoots Hitler in Mein Kampf and shows up and says he's not dead and <laughs> shoots him in the head and kills him. And then she goes off with the old hitman and... Now they're both old. Yeah. Now they're both old together, and then she tells him. That's when she tells him that she hired the assassin to go after him the first time because she was angry. And, I mean, the story ends up being about, like, this idea that sometimes, like, the only thing that a relationship... Sometimes a relationship is bad, and the thing that it needs is time, which is a thing that's impossible to get immediately unless you have a time machine. Right. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like, it's the same thing. It's sort of on the outer layer. It's like an action, time travel sort of sci-fi story. But then as you look at it, it becomes more, like you said, it's a comment on like relationships and the time that people need to grow, Mm -hmm. you know, a long-term relationship. Did you like this more or less? I like this more than Left Bank Gang, I think. I like the Left Bank Gang a lot, but I I just really like I like the the weirdness of this story. I like the pacing of it a lot. I like the like the looping back around into the, this ending. Um, I, there's like a weird melancholiness to this story. Like there's one of the big like unresolved things of this is the Hitler that escapes into present day and shaves his head never shows up again. We never find out what happened, what he did, what is it like for him. He just escapes into the real world and doesn't matter. I see. I thought that too. But then when I realized that when I went back and read it the second time and I looked at what was going on in the background, I saw the dog. And I wasn't quite sure if he's supposed to be Hitler, but I saw the dog that looks like Hitler doing lots of mundane things like going to the library or working in a restaurant and I kind of thought, like, maybe he just had, like, a normal life. Yeah. Like, he, it, he's this... But, like, display, there's this idea that, like, displaced from his time or whatever, he doesn't... He matters just as little as anyone else. Right. Yeah, I'm just looking at the panel where they show the dog that kind of looks like him. It's, yeah, so, like, waiting tables. Yeah, I, I wasn't quite sure if that was him or if it just was a dog that, like, sort of looked like him. And he kind of becomes, like, a metaphor for, like, neo-Nazis where it's, like... This darkness just sort of disappears into the mundane world and it's lurking there anytime that it might do something, but it might never do anything, but it's still there. There's still people that underneath their normal exterior, they're literally fucking Hitler. You know what I thought was interesting? Because while I was reading this, I was thinking a lot about Preacher and like, especially the TV series and the depiction Mm -hmm. of Adolf Hitler where he escapes from hell and he tries and tries and tries to like become a powerful figure in like contemporary times that he really just can't do it. He just mm-hmm. can't get any traction. 
But I think it's interesting because there's this huge conversation all the time about like time travel. And you and I talked about this in other constructs about like every time people were like, if I had a time machine, I go back in time and kill Hitler. Like sobbing, like disposing of Hitler will like solve the problems of World War Two. Yeah, it's just it's such an easy answer. Ah, we'll just shoot the boss of evil in his weak spot and all the evil will be destroyed. <laughs> but it's also like Hitler... Functionally, the assassin does do his job. He shows up at the right time, and Hitler is eliminated from that time period. Like, functionally, like, he shows up and Hitler's gone. So had he succeeded and things had gone off without a hitch, and he had just shown up and shot Hitler in the head in the past, it wouldn't have changed anything, because when he gets back to the present day and Hitler hasn't been there because he was in the time machine... Nothing's really changed. Yeah, and I think it, I mean, and also the only person who knows the truth, the historian, people think he's a crackpot. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just this weird alternative history about, you know, that goes on a lot. Like, they talk about that. That was, many books have that plot point where, what if Adolf Hitler didn't die? Yeah, or, yeah. You know, those kinds of things. But that's what, I mean, I thought was interesting about it. That's what it looks like. It looks like on the top of the story, it's a time travel story about someone who's going to go back in time and kill Hitler. But it's actually more about the people and their lives. Yeah. But it's like, yeah. At the end of the thing, like, he needed to live out these, all these years in the past in order to understand that, like, you know, he needs to open up to people and he needs people in his life and, like, the thing that he was missing from his shitty job wasn't that the job, like, I mean, having a better job would have been good too, but like the reason he felt empty was because he was forcing, he's isolating himself, and then she needs the, you know, the time to realize that like she needs to not be such a dick. Well, I think that's it. I mean, it's like two people who care about each other, but they're still awful to each other. And then they realize at some point that like being awful is not helping either one of them. But then there's also this, a little sort of unspoken bleakness to the story where it's like, okay, you know, this is about how time fixes these relationships, but like their relationship doesn't get fixed unless there's a time machine and a chase for Adolf Hitler. So it's like, what chance is, do some of these relationships have in real life then? Yeah, well, I think that's it. I think it's a com, you know, a comment on like modern society and how it affects relationships. I thought it was interesting that like no one was like really upset that all these people were being murdered. Yeah, but I mean, it's like it's like capitalism, right? Capital. It's it's just refocusing the locus of the brutality back into you know where it's visible to the people that are benefiting, right? Like. Every capitalist system has lots of people dying and suffering underneath it. So what's the difference if it's more visible in the broad daylight? Yeah. I mean, you could get your roommate assassinated because they drink your milk. Yeah. Yeah. I like his art style. I like that sort of minimalist style. I guess after, like, reading so many, like, big series where it's, like, so colorful and lush and highly detailed, the sort of, like minimalist style like you know very sparse backgrounds very sparse color choices it seems very modern and very sort of avant-garde yeah but it also feels like a little bit of a throwback it reminds me a lot like a lot of uh old newspaper comic strips where they had to be really economical with their art and design in order to be able to 
communicate clearly in the limited space they had. Does he ever draw or publish anything that doesn't have the animals? The only thing I know of is that pocket full of rain book. I don't know if Are there's they... one after that. I can show you some of the art. There, it's it's just um, you know, it's more realistic people. It's still pretty clean. It's like I think there's a big, uh, you know, Gilbert and uh, Jaime Hernandez sort of influence. But the funny thing is, the cover of the edition I have of that. Is is done in the style with the animals. Okay, so it's kind of similar in the drawing style. Yeah, it's a little bit more detailed. It's kind of like halfway between something like um, like this and like the Jill Thompson art that we saw in Sandman. But he messes around with a couple different styles in that book. So there, there's some that's a little a little bit uh, angrier and scratchier. Yeah, I just I thought it was interesting. I really I thought it was a nice sort of like refresher like sort of you know visually it's so much different from what we had been reading and it still has a very sophisticated literary even though it's cartoons and he is sort of even with the left bad gang where he's talking about literature and writing it's about comics and comic book art i think it really sort of has that sort of literary feel to it i think it's interesting i mean Everything is well done. The writing is good. You know, even though there's not that much dialogue, there's not that much text. Everything that he does is sort of very economical. Like you said, he maximizes what he uses in a very sparse way, which makes it very um, sophisticated. Yeah, I agree. I really liked it. Cool. I'm glad you did. Yeah, I, re- I read both of these like in high school, so they've been sort of like kicking around in my brain for like ever. I'm really surprised that you haven't talked more about Tintin because if you listen to like at least half of the podcast, you mentioned Tintin. Oh, I definitely think I could of Hitler in particular with the kind of, um, well, I guess the Living Hang is a little bit too, but like the like the rhythm of the chase of the like, this guy gets knocked out, he's not really dead, he gets up, he runs away. He shaves his thing, he's in the distance, and, like, now we have to hunt him down. Like, that all feels very Tintin to me. Like, the, Tintin always has, has that rhythm of, like, that sort of frenetic rhythm that, uh, where it's like, this thing goes wrong, we have to adapt, and, like, the characters sort of, like, moving through and past each other, you know, in ways that complicate their, uh, their, you know, the chase. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, like, the really clean art style is, is very influential to Tintin. I think the way he uses, uh, sound effects. Right. Yes. Is, it reminds me of that a lot. But yeah. I think that's, it's like, I, I mean, he, he's not doing like a Tintin riff, but I definitely think there's a clear influence. At least, if not from that, but then from like that general school of cartooning. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it. I mean, I, I would be curious to see if he ever does like a sort of a serialized or like, you know, like a, a panel, like a cartoon strip where it's not just a graphic novel, but something that's released, you know, serially, like if, what his, what it would look like and what the stories would be. Yeah, I would be interested in that too. But yeah, he's got, a, I mean, I recommend anybody to check out these. He's got a lot of other works. He has two uh, comics that are about the Three Musketeers. Oh. There's The Last Musketeer and Athos in America. They're both really good. The Werewolves of Montpellier is really good, too. Like, there's a lot of stuff. 
Yeah, do they all sort of have like a movie-inspired style? I, mean, I think that influence is there. Not all of them are like direct riffs on like a particular work, but yeah, they're they're all they're all sort of done like this. Do you have anything else to talk about? I don't know. Do you want to announce what we're doing next? Yeah, what are we doing next? So f- this is our last uh, January thing. This is our first comic of the new year. A good choice. And uh, so for February, we're going to do for our novella. We're going to do The Star Pit by Samuel Delaney, which is a, a 60s sci-fi story. So we're going to get back to to old school sci-fi, which we haven't really talked about in quite a while. I don't think so since I finished my Hugo list. I haven't read any sort of classic sci-fi. So that's going to be cool. And we're going to be reading the version of the novella that was published in a magazine. In Worlds of Tomorrow's February 1967 issue, I believe. Uh, but this story is also collected in... I can't remember the name. Delaney really only has like one short story collection, I think. Uh, and that's in there. This edition that we're reading from the magazine, from the original magazine... Also has illustrations, which makes it sort of... Yeah, that's why I wanted to read the, the the magazine scan. Yeah, and I think he's sort of an underappreciated writer, especially in the sci-fi. I mean, he sort of gets, you know, overshadowed by the big monster writers at that time in science fiction. So... Yeah, and he kind of falls into um, the new wave... With uh, Ellison and Aldous and Zelazny. Uh, so that's cool. I like a lot of that stuff and I like that time period. The, his short story collection that has the star pin in it is called I and Gamora. But like I like A-Y-E. In case anybody wanted to track that down. Yeah. And then for our comic, we are going to read Destroyer by Victor Laval. And who's the artist on that one? I think everyone knows that we love Victor Laval. Yeah, we're big fans of his stuff, and I'm excited. To, I haven't read this. This, is, this is, I think this will be the first comic that we've covered that I haven't read before we sat down, you know, before we decided to do it for the podcast. I think it's a good choice, and I think it's an interesting... It'll be an interesting discussion comparing the novella to the comic book work and these two different styles of writers who, I mean, they have two different styles, but they have a lot in common, which will be interesting to discuss. And yeah, so the destroyer is written by Lavelle and with art by Dietrich Smith. And it says Victor Lavelle's destroyer illustrated by Dietrich Smith with Joanna Lafuente. I don't, we can maybe talk about it on that episode. I don't like, the illustrated thing with comics when people try to credit comic book artists like that. They're not illustrators. They're collaborators. Right. I get for marketing purposes. They want to set this up like they're selling this on the back of it being here's Victor Lavelle, award-winning writer's comic book. And so that's why the credits are structured that way, but it always bugs me a little bit. There's a couple things that I think I'll be interested to hear you talk about. One of the things that I know that you're interested in is writers who write comic books so Mm -hmm. you know people who are known for being fictional writers and then do comic books and then also sort of this celebrity comic book writer yeah so 
I mean, we're getting a lot of very recently, you know, in the last uh, few years, we've been getting a lot of writers from outside of comics coming into comics. You know, Tanahasi Cuts is working on Black Panther. You've got G. Willow Wilson. I mean, earlier than this sort of wave, there was Joe Hill working on Lock and Key. And uh, Saladin Ahmed is doing stuff at Marvel right now. So there's a, a lot of that. And it's interesting to see how people who are so used to writing in a different medium, and especially writing in a medium where you're, you're it, you're the sole and only voice when you're writing prose. And now you've got to write to someone else so they can craft something around the words you're writing using the words. Like it beca- it's, it's interesting to see people move from comics, which is such a like, or from prose, which is such a like, monolithically individualist art form into something that is a collaboration. Well, I think Laval is interesting because, I mean, he's still an active writer, so we haven't seen his whole career at this mm-hmm. point. But he writes in a lot of different genres. Yeah, yeah. Like The Ballad of Black Tom. I mean, that's a horror supernatural. The Changeling has elements of fairy tales and mythology and some of his earlier works are commentary, social commentaries. So I think it's an interesting construct to have someone with that sort of very aware, very, he's very interested in, the, in politics and the cultural climate and he's interested in pop culture. And I mean, if you follow him on Twitter, he's been tweeting a lot about the Watchmen TV series mm-hmm. and the comic book. So he has a sort of, interesting point of view almost like an outsider point of view but then also integrated because outsider to comics you mean to comics yes and i think that so that'll be interesting to see his take what is destroyer about it is a frankenstein story okay so it is a, it is about uh, a descendant of dr frankenstein who is compelled by something that happens so well, to take up his work again will i be able to bring out my Theory that Nate always makes fun of me about, and that there's actually no monster in Frankenstein. We can talk about it. I don't think it's going to work in the context of this story, but we can absolutely talk about that theory. So yeah, so Star Pit by Samuel Delaney, and then uh, Victor Laval, Dietrich Smith, and Joanna LaFuente's Destroyer, and that'll be February. So it'll be a pretty interesting. So uh, all romance. Yeah, it's all romance. romance. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the Romance of the Stars. We well, should, should have saved it. I killed Adolf Hitler for February. Yes, because it is a love story. All right. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, it's a, that's, I think that's plenty. Spoiler alert. Stay tuned. Bye, everyone. Bye.